Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show that's usually about New York City's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, texture, and vibe. What makes that New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part or theme of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Past shows have included a history of U.S. presidents who came or lived in New York, the history of women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, which until 1898 was its own city, the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we've also explored the histories of bicycles and cycling. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. This program is the third of our special programs in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, which is largely recognized as the beginning of the modern LGBTQ rights movement in the United States. In New York this month, we're not only commemorating and celebrating this anniversary, but we're also host to this year's World Pride Celebration, which likely will be the largest gathering of its kind ever in the world. Our past two shows on Rediscovering New York showcased the experiences of men who were at Stonewall in their lives as out gay men in New York. On this show, we're going to focus on the history of lesbians in the movement and the experiences of some of the women involved in the modern LGBTQ rights movement. And we're pleased to have three very special guests on our show today. Our first guest is Carla J. Carla is Professor Emerita of English, Women's and Gender Studies, and Queer Studies at Pace University in New York City. She was an early member of the Gay Liberation Front and Radical Lesbians, which created the famous Lavender Menaces app, which we're going to ask Carla about. She has written, edited, and translated 10 books, the most recent of which is Tales of the Lavender Menace, a memoir of liberation. Her first anthology, Out of the Closets, Voices of Gay Liberation, was in 1972, is still in print and was listed by Publishers Triangle as one of the 100 most important gay and lesbian books ever published. Carla's book, Dyke Life, won the 1996 Lambda Literary Award in the category of lesbian studies. She has written for dozens of LGBTQ, counterculture, and mainstream newspapers and magazines, including The Lesbian Time, The Philadelphia Gay News, The Advocate, Rat, as well as The New York Times, Ms. Magazine, and The Village Voice, not to mention The Chronicle of Higher Education. Carla received the Bill Whitehead Award for Lifetime Achievement in Writing, and her journalism won two awards in 1983. Best Journalist from the Stonewall Arts Foundation and Best Interview from the National Gay Press Association. Carla's twice been a Grand Marshal of New York's Heritage of Pride March, one in 2002, as a first responder for her work with college students in the shadow of the World Trade Center, and now in 2019 as an early member of GLS, the GLF, sorry, the Gay Liberation Front. Carla, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Oh, thank you for having me. Are you from New York originally? Yes, I'm from Brooklyn. Ah. Uh, what neighborhood did you grow up in? I was born and raised in Flatbush. Oh, I actually went to Midwood High School, <laughs> which is actually in Flatbush. It's not in Midwood, but it's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, tell us about your career. When did you start at Pace University? I started at Pace in 1974 as an adjunct. And you started out teaching in the English department. Yes, I started in uh, my first teaching job. I started teaching English as a second language. Uh, yes. When did Pace establish its programs in women's and gender studies and also queer studies? I was part of the push to start those programs. We started them uh, probably, I'm trying to think, in the, uh, at the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s. I remember the first um, LGBT course that we had. We had a class called Dealing with Difference, and we sat there counting the number of letters in the title so that the words lesbian or gay would only appear in the subtitle of the course and would not appear on the student's transcript because we were afraid that we wouldn't get students in the class. And it was interesting, it was in, in, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, 
and half of the students in my first class, I was 84, half of the students were in the nursing program, and they wanted to find out about LGBTQ people, and the other half were gay people. We, we taught the class, I taught the class, and, and the students all wanted the door closed. It was very interesting how things have changed in, in 35 years. Wow, and that was in the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. in 1984, yeah. Mm. Uh, you were born with the name Carla Jane Berlin. You know, yes. I, I just got to ask you, when did you change your name and why did you decide to change it? I changed my name in uh, 1969 uh, as part of the women's movement. It had nothing to do with being gay or hiding my identity. I did not want a patriarchal name. And so I decided to get rid of it. I did not like the last name Berlin because when I was a child, uh, and I was in school, it was the Berlin Wall went up, and people would say, are you from East Berlin, are you East or West? I mean, people made fun of my name. Mm. Plus, in Brooklyn, people pronounced it Boylan, like they were boiling water, <laughs> and it was <laughs> such a pain in the neck. And my father was quite angry that I changed my name, and then I recently got a family history that, that a relative uncovered, and he had changed his name, so... You know, you just can't win sometimes with these things. So, so it was actually a name that he had made up. Uh huh. And he was from Europe, presumably, and took. They on. were from England. Yeah. My oh. well, my father was born here, but my his father was born in England. Yes. Oh. And so they took the name Berlin. Usually, yes. people take the names of, of places that they came from. You know, in no, they, no, no, it was, no, it was a shortened name from from a shtetl name. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> You graduated Columbia in 1968 and were there at a very, very interesting time. What was it like being at Columbia in the 60s? Um, it was pretty ordinary until the spring of 1968, and there was an uprising uh, in, on April 23rd, 1968, and students took over the buildings to protest the war in Vietnam and the creation of a, uh, a gym for Columbia students in Morningside Park. That's what Columbia wanted to do, and they were also in collusion with the Pentagon in terms of various um, research programs. And so students took over the buildings for about 10 days, and I became involved. I, I mean, I was interested. I was on the campus. And as a woman, the uh, guys primarily wanted us to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and throw them through the windows and to to... to physically support them with food and then sleep with them so that they could get through their revolution. And it was because of things like that that I became a feminist, you know. Um, Unbelievable. It, yeah, <laughs> you know, it was because of the SD, you know, the Students for a Democratic Society and, and the new left, they made me a feminist. It was, I, I thanked them many times. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I'm thankful for, my mother is a feminist uh, and raised us uh, the right way. She actually worked at a women's shelter in the early 70s. And I also had the distinction of going to Vassar College, which uh, really imbibed in me uh, really great, great values. What were the red stockings and, and how did you join them? I went to um, a, a kind of uh, an a meeting at, at Washington Square Methodist Church, and various groups from the women's movement were trying to recruit and expand, and I listened to various groups, and, uh, and Red Stockings appealed to me the most. They were a Marxist feminist group that developed consciousness raising and the phrase, the personal is political. Mm. And 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 I I like their idea of a class analysis of women as a group. Unfortunately, lesbianism fell outside their idea of a social class. They were only thinking of, of heterosexual women being a social class. So once again, I felt alienated from this organization. Mm. Well, we're going to talk about the lavender menace a little bit later on in yeah. our in our time together. Um, moving sort of toward the time of Stonewall, what was it like to be aware of your orientation and to be a lesbian before the beginning, you know, before the LGBT community said, we're not going to take this anymore? I think like many women of my generation, I compartmentalized my life. I, I was out to some people. I had a social life, but it wasn't at Barnard, which was quite homophobic. The first story I heard during freshman orientation in 1964 
was about two young women who were in their dorm room making out. A guy at Columbia Cross Broadway had binoculars, saw them in their dorm room making out. They were expelled. Oh, gosh. I thought this was apocrypha. I found that many years later it was not. It was a true story. But I was very frightened, and so I I remained very uh, firmly in the closet, even though there were a number of lesbian professors there at Barnard, like Kate Millett, who were also firmly in the closet. So I, I was kind of alone there. And I was careful to date people from other universities, you know, and, and, and to be uh, very discreet. Mm. One of the gifts I got from being a Vassar graduate is um, uh, having belonged to uh, the lesbian and gay alumni of Vassar College. And um, all of the alum before a certain point were all women. You know, there were no guys who were there. And to hear from, you know, I, I went from 78 to 82 in the 70s, and things were, you know, very obviously permissive. And... Uh, uh, to hear from women about the oppression and that people got thrown out, you know, uh, and that maybe some of the biggest bit of hypocrisy, someone who was high up on the staff, she actually lived with her partner and was expelling people. But anyway, that's a different. different well, well, even later on, I, I tried yeah. to organize a lesbian alum association, lesbian bisexual. I, a, a friend of mine had organized one at Harvard and I wrote a letter to the alumni magazine and I said, I want to organize a lesbian and bi alum organization. And they put a notice in the alumni magazine, Carla J., who is a lesbian, wants to meet others of her kind. And it sounded like I was looking for a date. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, I was so angry at them, I can't tell you. So it took a long time for them to come around, but now Barnard's really in the forefront. I mean, let me be fair and say they have a wonderful women's research center and, uh, you know, uh, transsexual professors and so on. They've come a long way, but, but it was a struggle. Mm. Do you remember where you were the night of the, of the raid at Stonewall? Yes, I was. I was the, you know, the only lesbian in New York or gay man not at the Stonewall. That's, that's where I was. I, uh, it was a weekend night. I usually went to a movie. It was too expensive to go to the bars. It cost $3 on a Saturday night to go to the cookies. $3 to get in the door. You got a ticket for a drink. It was on 14th Street and 6th Avenue. So me, with a college ID, I went to the Thalia, which, was, uh, which still is on 95th Street. You got a double feature for 50 cents with the student ID. That, w- that was me. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Carla J. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Follow Me Friday Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day. Rediscovering New York, uh, and our first segment is interviewing Carla J. and speak about the history and the experiences of women in the Stonewall movement around Stonewall and afterward. Um, 
Carla, did, were you engaged with any of the demonstrations the night of the raid, the night after the raid, the I, ensuing nights? Yes, I went down to the Stonewall the second night. Um, I heard about it on the radio, and I wanted to see what was going on, so I went down there. I walked around. There wasn't, you know, any action going on. Many of the stories are greatly exaggerated. I went to Sheridan Square. There were police horses up. There were a lot of cops down there. The door of the Stonewall Inn was intact. The, there was a big sign in the window with white letters. The window was there, and uh, it was from Mattershine, and it basically told people to keep the peace, cooperate with the police, and to go home. It was signed by Mattershine. And um, I didn't think, I said, oh, no, the time for cooperating with the police is over. But I was very wary of the tactical police force after Columbia. So I, I walked around. Most of the people were on the side streets. You know, they were back over um, more towards Greenwich and the side streets over there. There were knots of people talking angrily and saying, we have to do something. You know, this is really, this is really enough already. Um, you know, time's up. We have to, we have to, we have to do something and not do something. But there wasn't anything happening, so I walked around for a while and talked to people and listened and and went back home. I didn't know that anything was going to materialize. Um, you know, I didn't have a crystal ball. I thought the Fourth of July was coming and people would go. The guys would go off to Fire Island and that would be the end of the Stonewall Uprising. But that's not the way it turned out. No, but, um, I'm glad. I'm glad. Were you out to more people after the raid and the demonstrations? Not particularly. I was out to more people after I joined the Gay Liberation Front. Mm. I mean, when I, when I was one of the early members that summer, they organized within two weeks. From two weeks after the Yeah, after the, of the okay. uprising, and I was there two to three <clears throat> weeks later. I, I felt like I'd met, you know, my, my family. And, met, you know, there were men, women, trans people there, and uh, it was pretty chaotic and all kinds of people from all social classes, races, all kinds of sexual identities, the kinds of people I'd never met before, but I felt whole. I met other feminists who were like me. I felt more like these people than the bar people. And, and that helped me be more out to people in the women's movement um, and in the community. Where did the GLF first meet in its first number of meetings? In the beginning, we met at Alternate U, which was at the corner of 16, 14th Street and 6th Avenue on the second floor. Um, there was this kind of left-wing educational place that had a big center room and it had some little rooms around it. And um, we met there initially, but the group soon became too big. And we moved over to the Church of the Holy Apostle, uh, on West 27th Street. I don't think that uh, a lot of our listeners know that uh, there were uh, some organizations, we'll actually talk about one or two of them with uh, uh, one of our second guests later, but uh, a principal uh, way that people socialized was in the bars, and then after Stonewall, there was a burgeoning of all these organizations. One that you joined was the Radical Lesbians. When did you join the Radical Lesbians? Well, it's not like anyone actually joined any of these organizations. They never had mm -hmm. membership. Uh, and, you know, 50 years later, we get an email. We, as we're grand marshals of this upcoming March, people say, oh, I'd like to be a Grand Marshal too. And we're scratching our heads saying, well, we never heard of this person. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting. Suddenly everyone was in the Gay Liberation Front. So we didn't have membership and we didn't, we didn't know, but we knew each other back then. You know, if you took all of the feminists or you took all of the people in Gay Liberation and you lined us up arm to arm uh, from the Stonewall, we wouldn't hit, we wouldn't hit Hoboken. So it really, I mean, we were, we were a small bunch of people, and we knew each other. So Radical Lesbians was kind of a, a group that got together of Gay Liberation Front women. We picked up some women who were in the Women's Liberation Movement and some other people from around, and we got together with the initial goal of taking on the Women's Liberation Movement, particularly around two issues. Uh, Betty Friedan had been calling us a lavender menace, which uh, meant that we were going to destroy the women's movement. 
Uh, she forgot that we were the women's movement. If she got rid of lesbians in the women's movement, Betty would be pretty alone. And the other thing was Susan Brown Miller. In, on March 16th, 1970, the first major piece in the New York Times Magazine by Susan Brown Miller was about the women's movement, and she called us a lavender herring, meaning that we were like a false clue and we were going to kind of detract and, and mislead people. And some women were angrier over being called a herring than a menace, as you can imagine. So we decided to address this. We wrote a document called The Woman Identified Woman. It was a group effort. Uh, a woman named Artemis March was the one who really collated this thing. And we went to PS41 in the village, and we got together... And we, um, we had the document. We had signs like, take a lesbian to lunch. We are your worst nightmare. Women's liberation is a lesbian plot. And when two women went backstage, cut the lights, when the lights went back on, the audience was completely surrounded by lesbians. Was there actually uh, an organization or a group of people who called themselves the Lavender Menace? No, the group was called Radical Lesbians, okay, and the action it. is the Lavender That's, Menace yeah, action. Got it. But most people think we were called the Lavender Menace, which is, you know, uh, you know, history is all mixed up anyway. So, mm. you know, it's, it's really hard 50 years later to start sorting this out. Well, one thing keeping in the uh, spirit of the Lavender Menace that, that you participated in was the Wall Street Ogolin. What was that? I organized that. Yeah, we didn't have the word yeah. sexual harassment was not coined until 1983. But in 1970, there was a secretary named Brenda who every time she got out of the subway at Wall Street, she was well endowed. And men in suits and ties were following her down the street making comments about her body. So I got together a group of friends along with Marlene Sanders of ABC TV and we got down there really early and when these guys in their pinstripe suits got out of the subway at Wall Street, we followed them down the street. We called them names, um, we, we talked about their bodies and they didn't walk away, they ran. <laughs> they started <laughs> running down Wall Street uh, to get away from us. They couldn't believe that we were making comments about their endowments. They just, this was 1970. And then we went to a construction site and we took on the construction workers who were always whistling at women. But the part that's remembered is Wall Street because it was kind of like woman bites dog. You know, uh -huh. I mean, the construction workers, people knew. But the fact that these Wall Street guys were being so horrible to these women at the subway stop, that people couldn't wrap their heads around. And that was a very successful action. We, we had a lot of fun. That's what people forget. The Lavender Menace action, the Ogle, the first national Ogle in, uh, they were called Zaps. We had a lot of fun. We tried to make people laugh. We got people on our side. We didn't want to be arrested. So if you got people on your side and they were laughing, they were less likely to call the police. <laughs> well, I did something a little confrontational. Uh, uh, it would always offend me to see construction workers on the street and these delivery guys who'd open up the window and you know would 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 whistle and catcall. So for a number of years, although I haven't seen anyone do this lately, uh, you know, I would I would turn it back on them and I would and I would like cruise them. Yeah, <laughs> I would, and I would you, know. you know, and they got shocked. And I said, well, how does it feel, you know, to have an unwanted advance, you know, someone exactly. looking at such and such, you know, and some of them got it and some of them didn't. I never was uh, beat up or anything. I never got threatened. I never told my mother this. I should probably tell her and she'll so, tell me what, you know, why did you do that? She'll probably say you would have gotten uh, you could have gotten uh, uh, <laughs> beat up about it. But. Um, what other organizations have, have you been involved with over the years? I was part of Rat Magazine, which was interesting in, um, in the late fall of 1970. It was a, a countercultural magazine on East 14th Street, and it had been run by the male left. And one day, the women who were part of that, Martha Shelley, Jane Alpert, who was part of the Weather Underground, um, a woman named uh, Carol Grossberg, who's passed away in, a, a while ago, uh, myself and other women, I'm trying to think who else was part of that collective, we had enough of the, of the men and we threw them out. And we made it a women's magazine 
and um, it was great because we started to cover the women's movement. And as part of that, uh, Robin Morgan wrote a, a very famous piece called Goodbye to All That, which was one of the most famous pieces that denounced the male left. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about where uh, you've lived in New York. Um, obviously, you lived on the west side when you went to Columbia. When did you move to Fort Greene? I moved to Fort Greene. Uh, I, I, my apartment, not my apartment, but the apartment next to mine caught on fire. And uh, so I was forced to move because uh, my apartment was underwater on the Upper West Side. And I, I got, um, I got the, you know, probably the worst job of my life in Fort Greene in 1978. I worked in an illegal dog kennel in Fort Greene, where the, there were two lesbians downstairs from me, and they had uh, 25 dogs of their own. Plus, there were 25 boarding dogs. dogs they had 25 of their dogs own. in one floor. A monkey, uh, cats, fish, you name it. It was like it was like in motion there, and. Um, uh, in exchange for free rent, I was very poor, I had to take care of this kennel like uh, two days a week. So, you know, I can always say I've shoveled something. You know, I don't <laughs> know what I could say. I've shoveled that for a living. I can say that. So I, I lived there, and I liked Fort Greene, even though it was pretty weird. But after a while, they wanted to charge me and have me shovel everything. So I found an apartment two blocks away in Fort Greene, and I really liked the area. It was very run down back then. It wasn't a gay area. I mean, these two lesbians who lived... Um, you know, we used to call those cell sports socks. I don't know if you've heard that. No, I haven't. South Elliott, South Portland, South Oxford. The first letters uh, were would spell out cell sports socks, so you wow. could remember the order of the streets. And it, it the the area was very nice. It was sixty percent African American then, um, about twenty percent white, twenty percent Latino. Uh, there were gay men, very few lesbians back then. Hmm. You were also teaching as an adjunct at Pace around the time that you moved to Fort Greene, yes. weren't you? Oh. Mm -hmm. Being an adjunct, they probably weren't paying you enough to... <laughs> no, I made $4,000 a year. Wow. And I, I was doing a lot, you know, I was doing all these things, like, uh, as I said, <laughs> to make a living. That's why I wound up with these uh, colorful jobs. And mm. that's just one of my many colorful jobs, being a, you know, a poor uh, lesbian. And when did you move back to Manhattan? Oh, not for a long time later. I, I, I lived, you know, many different places. I, I lived in Paris for a year in '79. I lived in Hoboken. I lived all over. I lived all over the place. I lived in Cal. You know, I just California a little bit. I, uh, interestingly enough, I moved back to Brooklyn at one point to the Slope to meet. A lesbian, I met somebody back on the west side of Manhattan. Mm. So there you go, you know. Uh. Yeah, we never know where fate will take us. No, absolutely. And, and here you are back ensconced on the west side of yes, Manhattan. Yes, back on the, where I started out. Well, Carla J., we're, we're out of time. I really want to thank you so much for, for coming in and sharing um, some important elements about your life and your involvement with, with the lesbian and gay rights movement in the city. And uh, uh, for those uh, who came before my generation, I want to thank you so much for, for being part of that and helping us achieve what we have today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, and I also want to do a special shout out to a mutual friend that Carla and I have. I was introduced to Carla by Andy Hum, whom I've known for decades. Uh, you can, a little shout out to Andy's show. Andy and Ann Northrup have a weekly show called Gay USA that you can hear on Thursdays. I think it's Thursdays, isn't it? Uh, on Manhattan Cable. Uh, well, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have two very special guests. Uh, stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York neighborhoods and the myriad textures of this amazing city that we live in. Uh, even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, our page is Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. I know it's original, but that's what it is. And also follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC, another original handle for someone in New York. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. We have two guests for the second half of our segment about lesbians and women in the gay rights movement in New York. Uh, first is Flavia Rando. Flavia is a longtime lesbian activist and, like Carla, was a member of the Gay Liberation Front and Radical Lesbians. She's an art historian who teaches lesbian, women's, and gender studies. Flavia has written position papers, staged dances, and cultural events, designed costumes and sets, and was a member of the activist collective Lesbian Artists. As an academic activist, she was co-editor of We're Here, Gay and Lesbian Presence in Art, co-chair of the Queer Caucus for Art and the College Art Administration, and a founding member of the Australia Lesbian Foundation Visual Arts Committee. Recently, Flavia taught classic lesbian theorizing for CLAGS. For those of you who don't know it, it's the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies at CUNY. I'm a member, actually, <laughs> although I don't think I've renewed lately, but I have been a member. Um, Flavia is a coordinator of the Lesbian Herstory Archives. In 2011, she inaugurated the Lesbian Studies Institute at the Archives, and in the fall will begin the ninth year of her classes. She and the Archives Graphics Committee, curated by the force of our presence, highlights from the Lesbian Herstory Archives, celebrating the Archives' 45th anniversary. It's currently on view at the New York Historical Society. Her essay, To Transform Consciousness, appears in Art After Stonewall, 2019. And we have another special guest, Fran Winant. Fran is a pioneering gay and lesbian liberation activist, also a member of the Gay Liberation Front and Radical Lesbians, and is one of the activists featured in the GLF Come Out poster. Fran's an award-winning poet and painter. We're going to hear from one of her poems a little bit later. She edited and published the first U.S. anthology of lesbian poetry and art, We Are All Lesbians. It was published in 1973. Her poetry is widely anthologized, including in Poems from the Women's Movement, that's 2009, and in 2013, a collection of her poetry was translated into Dutch, I'm not going to feign to uh, try to pronounce it in Dutch. Books of her poetry are Looking at Women, Dyke Jacket, and Goddess of Lesbian Dreams, all published by Violet Press. Her essays, her essays about 1970s gay and lesbian liberation activism appear in Sinister Wisdom. That's from 2011. Fran is a recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Award in Painting. Her work was included in the first exhibition of queer artists in a major art institution, the New Museum's 1982 Extended Sensibilities, Homosexual Presence in Contemporary Art, and in the Pop-Up Museum of Gay History in 2012. Fran is a featured artist in Harmony, I'm sorry, she's a featured artist in Harmony Hammond's Lesbian Art in America, that was done in 2000, and in Christopher Reed's Art and Homosexuality, A History of Ideas. Her work is currently on view in After Stonewall, Sexual Identity and Politics, 1967 to 89. That's curated by Jonathan Weinberg at the Leslie Loma Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art, which is down on Worcester Street in Soho, for those people who don't know it. And it is my pleasure to welcome Fran and Flavia. Thank you so much both for being on Rediscovering New York. Thank you, Jeff. Are you each from New York originally? I'm from Brooklyn. Where, yes. where, where in Brooklyn are you from? Sunset Park. Sunset Park, okay. And you're also from New York, Fran? Yes, I'm from... Uh, originally Flatbush. 
Flatbush too. Okay. Did you know Carla growing no, up? No, different okay. part of Flatbush. Okay. Okay. Maybe not the part I went to school in Midwood, which is just on the edge, right on the uh, corner. No, of I went College. to Erasmus. Oh, you did go to Erasmus. Okay. <clears throat> did you? Um. Do you remember uh, uh, Dr. Bernstein, who was the chair of the social studies department <laughs> at that time? His wife Gladys Bernstein. She was one of my, you know, the great New York liberal teacher who imbued, uh, you know, the sense of the great things that great teachers imbue in, 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 our, in our public school system. Uh, Flavia, what's your academic and professional background? Well, for many years, I ran a, an art editing and research business. Then I got very bored. Uh, I kept uh, sending in lists to the authors, you know, this is sexist, this is racist, this is homophobic. And uh, one day I decided that just wasn't enough. I went back and got my graduate degrees and began teaching. Hmm. When, where have you taught? Uh, oh, I've sort of been an itinerant teacher. I've taught everywhere from Assisi, Italy, to oh, New Mexico, wow. to Albuquerque, New Mexico. When did you become involved with the archives, with the Lesbian History Archives? Uh, a decade ago. Um, um, I had always known about the archives. I visited uh, Joan Nessel in her the original apartment where the archives was housed in the early 70s, but I really only began working with the archives a decade ago. Hmm. You know, I first uh, found out about the Lesbian History Archives in the mid-80s. I was a member of the Greater Gotham Business Council, which was then the Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, mm -hmm. and uh, in, during Women's History Month, I think it was 84, 85, someone from the archives came to talk to us, and they were trying to raise money for uh, uh, a new location. Um, well, we did buy a new location, a brownstone in Park Slope. We paid off the mortgage in three years with donations from our communities. Uh, one of our principles is that we do not take government money, uh, and we really do rely on all our communities and allies. Have you ever uh, been or tried to get a grant then from like the New York State Council? or That uh, no, would be the government. government. So no, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Although we do get some major grants from other funders. Fran, what, what, what's your background as far as uh, art and, and painting and, and writing? Well, I've just always been doing it. Uh -huh. And uh, a little bit later in the segment, we're going to uh, be hearing from uh, Fran uh, read one of her poems. I, I, I want to note that uh, uh, Fran, it's true, has always been writing and uh, painting, but um, she was one of the principal readers of poetry during the early uh, days of the movement, especially at uh, women's readings, which were practically a weekly event, anyone who wished to read. Uh, for example, if we had a dance, we'd have the dance in one room, we'd have poetry reading in the next room, and we'd have a theater production in another room. So one of the elements of the lesbian movement was this huge cultural renaissance for lesbians. Uh, those who had always uh, worked as artists had a, a venue. Those who didn't have the courage to think of themselves as artists suddenly did. So I, uh, and Fran was a central figure in this. Mm. Um, there, I want to talk for a, a, a couple of minutes about uh, lesbian life in New York before Stonewall. So, you know, so many people of younger generations think that everything got birthed at, at, at yes. Stonewall, but actually there were things, people, gay people have been around for millennia. And Well, uh, actually, I do remember the 60s very clearly, living as an out lesbian, and uh, it was an extremely difficult time. You could not get down the street. You were stoned, catcalled, and threatened. Uh, it was very difficult to find community, although many were able to make do uh, with the bars. Uh, there were some uh, friendship circles that were formed, and uh, they were a great support. But even there, the uh, suffering of the kind of uh, humiliation and uh, difficulty that we all experience really told had its its toll on women's lives. Mm. Did Stonewall change that markedly right away? Oh, immediately, immediately. Um, 
like uh, Carla uh, just spoke, uh, I went down to uh, Stonewall within a day or two. The fires were burning, the smoke was billowing, and uh, a couple of weeks later met uh, Martha Shelley, who was, one of, who was one of the founders of the Gay Liberation Front on the 14th Street Crosstown bus, and she said, uh, we're thinking of forming an organization you want to join, and I said, I've been waiting for this all my life. Those are my exact words. And when did that bus? When did that encounter on the bus happen? What what year was it? Sixty nine. Within within a couple ah. of weeks. I mean, obviously, I had known Martha before. Within a couple of weeks of Stonewall, there was a very an important lesbian rights organization in New York before Stonewall. That was the Daughters of Belitis. I think it was formed in fifty three. Was 55. it? Fifty five. Nineteen fifty five, and in California, in San Francisco by Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, and the uh, New York chapter was established several years later. Were you a member of, of the Daughters of Believers? I tried to be, but I was too young, and people were really afraid of entrapment. Oh, wow. They were terrified of entrapment, and the first uh, guideline of the Daughters of Believers is all members shall be over 21. And if you didn't look more than 21 you definitely were not going to be welcomed. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Were, were the bars the, the principal method of lesbians and bisexual women meeting and socializing well, before, there were, before Stonewall? Well, those who were old enough joined the Daughters of Belitis. Uh I remember going to the Mattachine Society a few times because at least they welcomed people. Or weren't as afraid. Not that I blame anyone <laughs> uh, for fear. Um, uh, some women joined the military and found community there. Some uh, there was a great kind of link between certain lesbians and sports, but and they found community there. Mm-hmm. Now, Rediscovering New York is, is a program about neighborhoods, and I like to focus, uh, even with these special programs, on things about neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, the village was, was considered a gay neighborhood before Stonewall, at least for gay men. Did well, many lesbians p- live in the village? Oh, for goodness sakes. Uh, I, was in, I, was, I was nine years old and living in Brooklyn. And of so. course, there were many, many lesbians living in the uh, West Village, and those who could even then not afford the West Village moved to what was then the Lower East Side, which became the East, East Village. village. And uh, from the late 70s through the mid-80s, the East Village was really the center of lesbian culture in New York. There was, wow, the Women's One World Theater. There was Medusa's Revenge, a dance venue, uh, a movement dance venue where you could see lesbian bands in full tux performing. It was really a fabulous place. And those are just the two that come to me off the top of oh. my head. Now, I want to ask a little historical question. Um, uh, Harlem drag balls, uh, that go back to the 20s, were, were a place where gay people uh, mm-hmm. met. And did, Were women also involved in the drag balls back in the uh, I don't know if they were involved per se in the drag balls, but Harlem was a very welcoming place to many uh, lesbians, lesbians of color. Mabel Hampton, who was one of the inspirational figures for the founding of the archives, uh, worked and lived in Harlem uh, beginning in 1919. And in fact, her material uh, is marks 100 years of documented lesbian history that the Lesbian History Archives holds. And she knew figures like Ethel Waters and Alberta Hunter. So uh, there was a very rich lesbian culture in Harlem during the 20s and afterwards. Mm. Uh, We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I do want to ask Flavia about uh, the exhibition that she has helped curate at the New York Historical Society. And um, we are going to take a short break. Uh, We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. The 
best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back to Rediscovering New York with uh, guests on the second segment of our show, Flavia Rando and Fran Winant. Uh, Flavia is one of the curators of an exhibition at the New York Historical Society that I saw a couple of weeks ago, and actually which was uh, um, uh, an inspiration to, to put together the details of, uh, of tonight's show. Uh, Flavia, you want to tell us a little bit about the exhibition and things that, meant that, were, that you find, it, uh, fa- find to be especially meaningful for you in the exhibition? The exhibition highlights from the Lesbian History Archive uh, covers 100 documented years of lesbian uh, history, which was a word much used in the 70s, and we decided to keep that because and to honor that uh, shift in language and that uh, redefinition that the lesbian feminist movement was so much about, a redefinition of ideas, a redefinition of the value and place of art, Etc. Etc. The um, the exhibit contains material uh, from Mabel Hampton's life, so that's the beginning of the exhibit, um, and it contains material from the fifties. Uh, Joe Nessel, one of our founders, was out in the f- late fifties and sixties. Um, it also contains. The focus of the exhibit, in addition to being about the history of the lesbian history archives itself, is about the lesbian feminist movement and the way in which it um, it inspired a, re- um, a sort of a resurgence of women's and lesbians' art of all sorts. Half of the uh, exhibit is devoted to posters. Uh, showing the many, many uh, political actions. One of our posters is a, uh, a variant on the, so to speak, on the, uh, on the uh, Gay Liberation Front Come Out poster, in which uh, Peter Hugeau's photograph of Fran Wynant and others... Ah, oh, Peter Hugeau did that photograph. That's right. Oh, okay, wow. Uh, ...is uh, printed across a, um, a mandala designed by Susan Bevier, one of the members of Gay Liberation Front and Radical Lesbians. It's a great exhibition. It's one of the best I have seen of LGBTQ history. And uh, there's also another interesting part of the exhibition that also uh, uh, focuses on entertainment and how that contributed to to uh, LGBT people connecting in that part of, of the whole coming out uh, mm-hmm. process for a lot of people. Um, the New York Historical Society is on 77th Street and Central Park West. And how long is this exhibition running? For? The exhibition is running through September 22nd. And the um, we at the archives invite you to join us in a closing salon on uh, September 20th in the evening. Uh, I wanted to also emphasize that um, some of the objects such as clothing and T-shirts. Not only did we protest and march and write, but we wore our ideas 
on ourselves. We made the archives has 3,000 T-shirts with political slogans. Wow. We have uncounted thousands of buttons from across the country with political slogans. Uh, the archives, uh, Linda McKinney's jacket, in which she has painted and embroidered the re redefinitions of um, history and of spirituality is one of the key objects in the um, exhibit. And it just shows the kind of um, enthusiasm, the kind of freedom, the kind of liberation that this movement um, engendered. We also have a section on meaningful firsts, um, volumes, and one of them is Fran Wynance, uh, who was the editor of We Are All Lesbians. Uh, Fran had been um, reading poetry for three for a couple of years at that point, and um, she wanted to give, and I found an early uh, taped interview with Fran, and she wanted to give other women the chance to publish. So she announced in her very first book that she wanted to do an anthology of lesbian poets. And is it Deborah Glick? Yes. Deborah Glick is one of the poets. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Assembly member uh, from the district that includes uh, 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 mm -hmm. the village, the West Village in Chelsea. And Fran, you're going to be reading part of one of your poems for us now. Okay. Um, this is a, an excerpt from the beginning of my poem, Christopher Street, Liberation Day, June 28, 1970. With our banners and our smiles, we're being photographed by tourists, police, and leering men. We fill their cameras with 10,000 faces bearing witness to our own existence in sunlight from Washington, Maryland, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Ohio, Iowa, Minnesota, from Harlem and the suburbs, the universities, and the world. We are women who love women. We are men who love men. We are lesbians and homosexuals. We cannot apologize for knowing what others refuse to know, for affirming what they deny. We are marching past the crumbling old world that leans toward us in anguish from the pavement. Our banners are sails pulling us through the streets where we have always been as ghosts. Now we are shouting our own words. We are a community. We are society. We are everyone. We are inside you. Remember all you were taught to forget. We are part of the new world. Wow. So that, that idea of, um, of us as members of uh, the Gay Liberation Front being part of the new world was a very important idea for us. Um, we saw ourselves as a radical group, and we wanted other radical groups to take us seriously, to take our struggle seriously as we took their struggle seriously to ally with us as we allied with them. Um, and all of this has ultimately happened in some form, um, not necessarily uh, what we would have thought of as radical, but it has happened as in terms of alliance. There are a lot of groups now that call themselves um, gay people and, and the and is a tremendous variety of other kinds of people. Mm. And you've written a lot of poetry since then as well, since the, that 1970. Yes, I've, I've uh, put together three books of poetry. <coughs> um, yeah, the main thing, I think the main thing that I did though was um, writing about those years that was that was the thing that uh, people think of me in relation to describing the beginning of ways that people interacted and things that people wanted for for themselves, the longing f for an identity. You know, as gay people, we didn't have an identity when we were hidden. We were all we were ever thinking about was how to 
you know, hide the next part of ourselves. And uh, the idea of not of existing and not having an identity is really quite a big thing. You know, mm. it's like it's just like not not being a person. And when we actualized ourselves by through our political work and through our creativity, that was that was a growing up process. Right? Whatever people's age was, that was uh, kind of a new new family and a new growing up process. And we became new versions of ourselves for the first time that we really never would have been able to be those people without Gay Liberation Front. And, you know, one of the non-glamorous uh, parts of the movement are the artists and the people who immortalized our feelings and our journeys through the written word and also through, through painting. Um, I wish we could talk more. We are just about out of time. I want to thank you both. Fran Winan, poet and artist, whose work is, uh, can be seen at the Leslie Loma Museum right now. Thank you so much. Flavia Rando, the Lesbian History Archives, thank you so much for making the time to, to come here and, and share the history and share your experiences with us. Thank uh, you. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. The, that wraps up our third special program on Stonewall, and it was my pleasure today to bring a little bit of a different perspective of women uh, and lesbians who were part of this movement uh, from the days of Stonewall and since. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, who specializes in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc and at 9 p.m. Beyond Potential Living Life Your Way with my friend Noreen Sumter. Thank you so much for listening to the show this evening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.